All right, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to say this on the front end. I want to welcome everybody here to Grace Community Church to our continuing study of Colossians. And we have a little bit different type of passage today. It's a, ta- it's a passage about slavery. And we're going to handle this passage a little bit differently than we normally would. Okay. Normally, we try to get to the text as soon as possible and stay there as long as possible. Today, we're going to take a lot of time to talk about history and about New Testament background to help us learn how to think about this issue. And so I want to say two things before we pray together. I want us to learn something today. I want our minds to be instructed about this topic today because this has been misunderstood for centuries. In regards to what the Bible really teaches about this issue. I want us to understand it for ourselves. And I want, to, I want us to understand it with enough clarity to talk to our culture about it. That, that, that has a tremendous misunderstanding regarding what the Bible teaches about this issue. So I want us to learn something. Okay? I want this to be an intellectual experience for you. That you learn something that you didn't know. That you learn how to talk about it in a way that you didn't know how to talk about it. But even more than that, I want this to be a, a, a time where we're personally edified okay, by a more obscure passage of Scripture. And so I'll remind you what we believe as a local church. All around this church, we believe this. All scripture is breathed out by God and finish it profitable. That means that we can spend time in in a passage like this and we walk away with more than knowledge. We walk away edified, being addressed, personally addressed by God, the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to go with that mindset. I want us to go to the Lord and I want us to ask God to draw near to, to us this morning to help us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we continue to celebrate the things we just sung about, that we just sung to you. Lord, we magnify your saving work in our life this morning. And we gather together this morning in the name of Jesus and we are clean. We are clean today because of what you have done for us in Christ. We are covered, Lord, with that righteous garment. And we have you as our Father in heaven. And you are everything to us, Lord. You're everything to us. And God, we ask that you would be gracious to us this morning. And that you would draw near to us as your disciples, as your sons and daughters. And that you would teach us how to think, Lord. God, even as I pray that, God, we confess our weakness to you. We confess the weakness of our minds to you, God, that we can't even understand truth. We can't understand anything in your universe apart from you revealing it to us, Lord. God, teach us how to think about this. In truth, Lord, teach us. God, let us be God-taught disciples about this issue. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply your word all across this room this morning. That you would make our time profitable in your word. And we just tell you, Lord, that we are dependent on you today. Not by strength. Not by power. 
Not by might and the might of man. Not by giftings or abilities. But by your Holy Spirit we gather, Lord. And unless you draw near to us, God, we, we meet in vain today. And so we ask for you to be faithful to us, Lord. To be gracious to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, our text is going to be Colossians chapter 3. And this will be the most important words that you hear me say in the next hour this morning. Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. And we will begin reading in verse 22. This is the word of God. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This is God's word to his church this morning. And I want to pause right there. And I want to take a moment just to remind you as Grace Community Church. What a perfect example of, of why we do what we do. At Grace Community Church. Why 95% of our Sunday mornings together. The vast majority are spent working passage by passage. Through books of, the, of scripture. Uh, and, and, and now Colossians. What a perfect example of that right. Because the other, the, the other way to do that. Is me and Ryan every week are, are going and figuring out. What do we need to talk about this week? What do we need to talk about this week, and in a lot of ways, this is a safeguard for a local church that they don't hear sermons about their pastor's favorite topics over and over and over again. And many of you are, are, of you are familiar with the hashtag said, said nobody ever. This is one of those things like I've never heard of this uh, uh, of a man going into his prayer closet. Uh, Lord, what I preach on this week and he comes out and says, I know what we need. I know what we need. On Sunday, I'm going to preach about slaves and masters to the local church. That's the word in season. That's the word that we really need to hear. And so what a perfect example of why we do what we do. Okay, This is in the Bible and that means it's important. God wants to instruct his people about this topic. And unless we did it like this, this topic and other topics like that would almost certainly be Completely ignored. So this is a perfect example of why we do what we do. Alright, this morning I want to start with a definition of slavery. I want to, I want to give us a baseline. Uh, we're, we're all agreed on what we're talking about. And then we're going to move forward from this definition. And we're going to ask and answer many questions this morning. Many questions. Not all of your questions. So if you have any questions that we don't answer, this is a standing invitation every single week that you follow up with me and Ron. That you follow up with us if you have any questions that are not answered this morning. Alright, what is slavery? 
I'll give you two definitions. The first is slave. The second is slavery. Jot this down. A slave is a man or woman or child who is considered the personal property of another human being. A man, woman or child who is considered the personal property of another human being. That's on the individual level. Slavery as a system is a system in which human beings are owned by other human beings. And this is technically referred to as chattel slavery. A human being owning another human being as their personal property. Personal property. Alright, here's our first move this morning. First move this morning. As we define slavery and a human being owning another human being, and we call it chattel slavery, first thing I want us to do is I want us to answer this question. Does the Bible condone that? Does the Bible condone what you just defined? A human being owning another human being. And I can say, I can tell all of us this morning, that in the first chapter of the book, that system stands in direct contradiction to what God has told us about every single human being. Genesis chapter 1, verse, verse 27, we are told that man and woman both, both are created in the image and likeness of God. That truth in and of itself gives dignity to every human being who draws breath in God's universe. Every human being is an image bearer of God. And the very concept of chattel slavery dehumanizes an image bearer of God. In the very beginning, the very first chapter of the Bible, the man and the woman were told to be fruitful, multiply, and to take dominion, not over other image bearers, but over the creation. They were never told to rule other image bearers. The Bible stands at odds with this in the very first chapter. In the very first chapter. So that's where I want us to start this morning. Slavery is at odds with Scripture. Slavery is at odds with Scripture. But that statement needs to be unpacked some more because there's some harder questions. There's some harder follow-up questions right behind that. Okay? And we're going to take some time going through these follow-ups because of how often and how frequently the Bible has been misinterpreted in this area. And the argument and the misinterpretation goes like this. Okay? Not so fast. Not so fast. Okay? Because the Bible regulates slavery, therefore the Bible must condone slavery. Because God regulates slavery, the God of the Bible must condone slavery. That's the misinterpretation. Okay? Because the scriptures regulate it, the scriptures must condone it. That's what racist White slave owners said 100, uh, 200 years ago. That's what they said. There's nothing wrong with this in and of itself. The Bible regulates it. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay. And that was their misinterpretation of what the Bible teaches. And this is still what the unbelieving uh, liberal 
uh, Bible-hating, God-hating agnostics still say today, your God, your God condones slavery. Just read about it in the scriptures. He tells them how to do it. So they're making the same fundamental misinterpretation with, with, with the Bible teaches about this issue as slave owners did 200 years ago. Okay? And the misinterpretation goes like this. Because there's regulations on how it is to be done, therefore your God must condone this. He has no problems with this. And this is a misinterpretation of Scripture. This is, this is a mishandling of God's Word. It is simply not true. Now, I'll give you two examples of this. Of we cannot read the Bible like that. It won't fly as we begin to, to treat other topics with that same hermeneutic. We would run into problems very fast, very quickly. Let me read a verse to you. This is a, let's just say we, we treated persecution with that same grid that, uh, that some had misunderstood, misinterpreted of what the Bible says about slavery. Let me read you this. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. The Bible says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. On the surface, can't get around it. The Bible regulates how we are to respond to persecution. We don't have a license to respond to persecution just any way we want to. Okay? And we know that God hates persecution. God does not approve of anybody persecuting his people. But we don't have a license to respond to that sinful act any way we want to. We can't curse. We can't curse those who persecute us. We bless them. And so the Lord lays down regulation in the midst of that wicked thing that he does not approve of. Clear enough. Jesus takes this, uh, he makes this really specific about divorce in Matthew 19. Matthew 19 verse 8. Let me read you this. Jesus says to his disciples, he says this, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Do you catch what Jesus just said? Okay. He, he, is, he is telling them that, that from the beginning, the heart of God was this way. And because of your hard, sinful hearts, God permitted this thing for a season. Okay? He regulated it. And these are just two examples of how the Bible does this in many different ways. It gives regulations for things that on the surface and at the root of God does not approve of. And slavery fits in that category. God regulates it with his law in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? And we can say that he's restraining it. He regulates it in order to restrain it. His law that he lays on this system, it keeps it from being as wicked as it would otherwise be. He restrains the system of slavery from being as bad as it would otherwise be. We're going to come back to this. The Bible restrains, puts restraints on slavery, but it does more than that. It does more than that. The Bible actually introduces truths about man 
and about the slave master relationship that eventually over time overturned the entire system, the entire system. So I want you to think about something. The Bible led to the downfall of the slave system. That's not what you hear in our culture. Okay, you hear things like this. Yeah, those backwoods Christians, you got slavery wrong and you're still getting stuff wrong. Okay, and the way we respond to that is not. No, we didn't. That's not how we respond to that. It is true that racist southerners justified the oppression of African slaves, the owning of African slave by misinterpreting the Bible. Is that true? And we say, yes, that's true. That really happened. They misused the Bible to justify what they do. But listen, that's not the only thing that's true. We have to come full circle on this issue because guess what? Legalized slavery in America doesn't exist anymore. It has, it has, it has illegal forms still, sure, all over the world, but not in a legalized form. It doesn't exist anymore. And so the question of the hour is what? What stopped it? What stopped it? Yeah, racist people misinterpreted scripture to justify what stopped slavery in our culture. Somebody might respond on the surface and say, well, the Civil War did. The Civil War stopped slavery in our culture. But you really have to drive it deeper than that. You have to drive it deeper than that, that the Civil War was undergirded by this abolitionist mindset. That was undergirded by a biblical worldview that every human being is created in the image of God and has personal dignity and worth no matter no matter their age, no matter their their state in life and no matter their ethnicity. And so the biblical worldview, the Bible applied, rightly interpreted, is actually what tore it down in America. And guess what? It's the same thing that tore it down in the British Empire. Two world systems. The Bible ended this. The Bible ended it. Over time and applied and rightly interpreted. We have men like William Wilberforce, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley. All of these men preached the truth about slavery from Scripture. And every single one of them were persecuted for it. They were persecuted for it. So history bears out not only that people misinterpreted scripture to justify slavery. History also bears out that the Bible brought to bear on the culture tore this stuff down, tore it down. It undermined the whole system. Okay, but I want us to think about some nuances to this. It's important for us to note that the way the scriptures undermine this system was more subtle and slower than we might have expected. Okay, And even in our passage today, the Apostle Paul, he, he is not calling for an empire-wide slave revolt. He's not doing that. In fact, you can't find that on the pages of the New Testament. His strategy is more slow and subtle, and it undermines the whole system. I want you to think about why. I'll give you two reasons. These are not exhaustive, but I'll give you two. Okay. One reason of why you do not see a full frontal assault on slavery in Scripture 
is that the approach of the New Testament writers is different than our approach today. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. They are mainly concerned with transforming individuals rather than transforming culture. Okay? Or maybe even a better way to say that is they aim to transform culture by transforming individuals. They didn't go the other way around. In other words, the Apostle Paul, he never wrote a letter that we know of to the Roman Emperor. He never wrote a letter that we know, know of to the Roman Senate. Their strategy is different than our strategy today. They are aiming to turn the world upside down by changing human hearts. Okay? The bullseye in the New Testament, it never moves off of individual human hearts. Bowing down to the authority of Christ. Transformed by the power of God. Given a new heart, a new mind. An entirely new orientation of how they live. That's how they turn the world upside down. One disciple at a time. And so their strategy is just different than, than the way we think. Many, many times. Okay, And that's one reason of why you don't see the full frontal assault that we might expect. And another important reason is this. For a more subtle approach to slavery. Is that the form of slavery that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. In this passage has some important differences. Than the form of slavery that we are most familiar with. With our background in the American South. Now listen carefully to me for just a second look at me. I want you to be very gracious of what I'm not saying, okay? I am not saying that any form of slavery is acceptable. I'm not saying that any form of slavery is right, okay? But there are some important differences between the form of slavery in the American South and the form of slavery that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the Roman Empire. And I want you to understand it. I want you to know something about this. Because in several ways. The form of slavery that we are most familiar with. Is more inherently wicked. Than the form of slavery that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. In this letter. And that helps us to understand some of his strategy. And I want you to jot these down. I'm going to go through several of these. Okay? Several of these. Here's number one. How is it different? Slavery in the American South was built on the wicked foundation of man-stealing. Man-stealing. History tells us that over 10 million free men... Women and children were snatched away from their families. They were snatched away from their homes and their villages in Africa. They were sold into slavery and they were trafficked thousands of miles away, never to return ever again. The Bible has a name for that wicked sin and it calls it man stealing. Man stealing. We call it today, we call it human Trafficking, 
And the first thing that I want us to understand is that the form of slavery that we're most familiar with, that's the foundation that it was built off of. And listen closely. God tells us exactly what he thinks about that. That wicked sin carries the death penalty in Scripture. Listen to this. In Exodus chapter 21, he says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Somebody's guilty of that. The God of the Bible says they deserve to die. And listen, not only the people who kidnapped them and sold them, but also the people who buy them, God says they deserve to die. That is a capital offense in the eyes of God. The entire American, Southern American slave system is built off that. Man stealing. Something that God says they should have died the moment that it happened. It's a wicked, wicked sin. Other forms of slavery are different than that. They're not, I'm not saying that they're righteous, but they're different forms of slavery are more inherently wicked than other forms. And I want you to understand that. Other forms of slavery were different. They were largely a result of economic destitution. Economic destitution. Listen to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed one of his brothers may redeem him. So this form of slavery, it's built off a completely different foundation than snatching someone out of their home, out of their village, trafficking them a, a thousand miles across the world, never to be seen again. This form of slavery is about the poorest of the poor. And they fall into slavery as a last ditch option not to die from poverty and from destitution. So there's other forms of slavery than the form that we're most aware of. And the form that the Bible regulates is a different form. It's different in nature. Number two. Slavery in the American South is based off ethnicity Slavery in the Roman Empire was not, was not. So I want you to take a trip back, 1800s, and you take a stroll through the South. You take a glance with your eyes, and on the surface, you know exactly who the slaves are and who the free men are. And you know that it's really simple in that system because every black man, woman, and child you lay eyes on in the American South is a slave. And everybody else, without exception, is free. The entire system was based off ethnicity. Ethnicity. American South could never have even begun to conceive of a white man being a slave or a white woman being a slave, much less a white man being the slave of a black man. Wasn't even on the grid 
wasn't even on the radar because it was based on ethnicity, on ethnicity. The whole system is based off a belief that those of African ethnicity are inferior human beings. The whole system is based off that lie. The whole system. In fact, our government, this is true. Our government even said about enslaved Africans that they weren't even a real man. They weren't even a real person. They were three-fifths of a man. The whole system is based off this idea of an inferior ethnicity. Other forms of slavery are very different from that. Very different from that. If you were to take the same stroll through the Roman Empire, the background that the Apostle Paul is dealing with, and you look around and you see the melting pots of the peoples and the Roman and these Roman megacities, people from here, there, and everywhere, all over the place, and you take a look, and you have no idea who the slaves are. Not on the surface. You have no idea. Because a slave could be any ethnicity. Any ethnicity could be enslaved in the Roman Empire. In fact, the word slave comes from the word Slav, which referred to the enslaved Slavic peoples who were white. Who were white. So then we, we have the only the, the most familiar form of slavery that we're aware of doesn't even have a grid for a white slave. What a white slave would look like. This is not true in the Roman Empire. And not even that, as you're going through and you're strolling around in these mega cities, you walk in the South, the American South, and the slaves, and they're in the fields, and they're doing the hard manual labor. It was not like that in the Roman Empire. There wasn't a division of labor of slaves do this and free people do this. Slaves were doctors. They were lawyers. They were professors. There wasn't a division of labor like we're used to when we think of slavery. That is unheard of in the American South. Unheard of of a slave being a lawyer or a professor. And so the, the form of slavery that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the New Testament, it has some important differences. Last one is this. Number three. Slavery in the American South was permanent. Other forms of slavery were not. In the South, if you were an enslaved African, you had no hope of earthly freedom. You had no hope of a better life for your children or your grandchildren. Mama was a slave. Grandma was a slave. And as far as you knew it, every generation down would be a slave. It was a perpetual condition. Perpetual condition. And in fact, there were strict laws placed in the American South to keep the African slave in that condition of bondage. Of bondage. Such as this. It was against the law in the American South to teach a slave to learn how to read and write. To learn how to read and write. Can you imagine that? It would be illegal in the American South 200 years ago for you to teach a little black girl how to read. And the whole aim of, the, of, of that whole system is to keep them in bondage. Shut them up in bondage. Perpetual Slavery, no hope of a better life. 
No hope of escaping this condition. Shut them up. Keep, even keep knowledge from them. Because that could be used for them to improve their situation. Old Testament slavery was not like this. Roman slavery was not like this. Old Testament slavery was not permanent. Exodus chapter 21 verse 2. Listen closely. When you buy a Hebrew slave. He shall serve six years. And then the seventh he shall go free for nothing. For nothing. The American South knew nothing of that. Every seven years you set the slaves free. Nothing. It was a different form. Different form. The Bible is regulating a form of slavery that somebody fell into for a season. And then they were... They were freed from that condition. It wasn't a permanent thing. They had hope of a better life. Slavery in the Roman Empire was similar. Slaves in the Roman Empire were regularly freed. And this was a legal process known as manumission. Manumission. Slaves would go through a legal process. And on the other side of that process, Roman slaves would be legally Roman freed men. Freed men. History tells us that many Roman slaves were freed. They, they received manumission before they were age 30. Before they were 30 years old. And so again, not, not all Roman slaves were freed. But the entire system was different. It wasn't permanent. Nothing you can do about it. It was Temporary in nature, and there was at least a glimmer of hope for a better life, for a slave to gain their freedom. Gain their freedom. As I studied that, dug into the history and the background of that, I was reminded in a way that I never have been of how wicked the form of slavery that hit the American South was. It was wicked. It was wicked. An entire people, an entire ethnicity for decades and decades and decades was held in bondage, treated like animals. Wicked, wicked, wicked. One of the most wicked forms that's ever hit our world. And that happened in our area to our forefathers. Both received it and did it. And I think that's one of the things that we can learn is the inherent evil of what actually happened here. To image bearers of God. To image bearers of God. And we're still feeling the effects of that sin today. God judged our nation. And there's still racial tension all over our nation. So wicked, 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 wicked sin. Wicked sin. And for decades and centuries we were guilty as a people. We were guilty as a people. So this is just a little insight. Of the different forms of slavery than what we're used to and what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this letter. And I want us to press in really quick to the text. And and here's what we see on the surface. That's the system that he's engaging. The system of slavery. It's not righteous. It's in contradiction to scripture. But it is not as wicked of a system as we're most familiar with and what we see just on the surface before we get into these verses and that in the midst of that system the gospel was going out in the Roman Empire Christ was being preached in the Roman Empire and at some point along the way some slaves heard the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Some masters heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They heard about God sending His Son in a real human body, living a righteous life that they should have lived but did not live. And then the Son of God being hammered to the cross instead of sinful humanity, bearing the wrath of God in their place. They heard that gospel. And the passage tells us that some of them believed it. Some Roman slaves believed the gospel of Jesus, the good news of salvation from sin. And this passage tells us that some slave owners believed the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of sin. And God made them new creations. They were new men and women. They had a new heart, new mind, new orientation in this world. In a spiritual sense, everything was different about them. But in an earthly sense, they still found themselves in the midst of this system, the system. That they have been a part of, probably always been a part of. And what we see in this passage is the Lordship of Jesus Christ applied to that very specific cultural situation. And we see the Lord Jesus lean in to those two individuals, converted slaves and converted masters. And he leans in and he exerts his Lordship and he gives them commands, gives them commands. The Lord Jesus has something to say about how they're supposed to live in that condition on both sides of it. On both sides of it. We're going to cover that this morning really quickly. Paul addresses the slaves first. The word translated bond servant, verse 22, is a really watered down word. It really is. The word is doulos and every time it means slave. And so we have a tendency to try to soften these things, uh, but it's not softened at all. That person is owned by another human being, and he's addressing slaves in this text. And the Bible commands these slaves to obey their masters, that they are lit to live in obedience to their masters. I want to draw just a couple of details, a couple of details from this passage. And the first is this. Imagine yourself across the table with a converted slave and you're in the Roman Empire. You have a chance to, to address them. The first thing the apostle does is he leans in and he tells them to obey. But then he gives them a lot of reasons of why they need to do that. And the very first thing he leans in and says over and over and over again in this passage, there's something you need to know. There's something you need to know. And more than anything else, you need to know that the Lord Jesus is your ultimate master. You might find yourself in this season, but you are not defined by this relationship between you and your master. Ultimately, Jesus rules over you. And you see this several different times in our text. In verse 22, he reminds the slaves... That their masters are their earthly masters. Cause them your earthly masters. Literally the phrase is the master of the flesh. And the implication is really clear. Okay, Their authority over you has limits. They might rule you on earth. But they don't rule you in the spirit realm. You have another master over them. Not, not just your earthly master. But your master in heaven. The Lord of the spirit. Verse 22, slaves are reminded that as they go about 
This obedience and this relationship, they are to do this in fear of Christ. In fear of Christ. Verse 23, they are told, you work for the Lord, not for men. So I want you to imagine you're sitting there and you're trying to encourage this converted slave, this brother or this sister in Christ. And he's leaning in and he's trying to get them to see you, you work for the Lord Jesus, not for men. Not for men. Verse 24. They are told that it is from Christ himself that they will receive a reward. And so in every one of those examples, what Paul is doing is he's trying to get their eyes off of this earthly master. And he's trying to kick that gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them, Jesus owns you. And everything you do in this world can be done to the glory of Christ. And even though you may have a very, very difficult lot in, in an earthly sense, you are about to enter into a, a, a heavenly reward. A momentary affliction is going to give way to an eternal weight of glory. And so what he's doing, he's trying to kick the eyes higher. Fix your gaze on Jesus Christ. He's reminding them. That their fundamental orientation is not towards that earthly master, but towards Jesus Christ himself. There's a Puritan named John Davenant. He sums this up really beautifully. He says uh, the Apostle Paul is reminding them that their earthly masters may have bought these slaves with money, but Christ has purchased them with his blood. He owns you. He owns everything about you. He's your true and eternal Lord. Next, he leans in even further and he warns these slaves about the motives with which they serve in this world. And this is really difficult. This rubs against our worldview. Okay? And he says this in verse 22. They are warned not to serve with eye service. Eye service. Look at that in verse 22. That vividly sketches out a picture of someone who works real hard while somebody's looking. Okay? Really diligent, really uh, got, getting after it. And then the moment that their uh, superior, their master leaves and their eyes are no longer on them anymore, the quality of their work diminishes. This is eye service. And they're warned about this. Don't do that. Don't, don't do eye service. The, the, the very same verse, verse 22, tells us that the motive behind somebody doing that, working real hard when their master's looking and not working real hard when he's not, tells us that the motive in somebody's heart of why they would do that is they're called a people pleaser or a man pleaser. And, and, and he's leaning in to these converted slaves and he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't serve in that way. And then he turns the corner and he says, but do this instead. Let this be your motive instead. Verse 20, 23. They are encouraged to serve with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Again. This goes a real strong rub. A really strong rub in our worldview. That the Lord Jesus leaned in. And he found these slaves in a very difficult situation. And he said, listen, listen, do even in the midst of this situation, you serve with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 
Don't give way to eye service and people pleasing. So he's giving them a warning about their motives. And then the last thing he does when he addresses these slaves is he reminds them about eternity. In verse 24, he reminds them that they will receive the inheritance. Now, I'm going to tell you, that would have been a sweet, sweet, sweet sentence to a, to a Roman slave that had nothing in this world. You will receive the reward of the inheritance. You will. You will. And in an earthly sense, they had nothing. They had no status. They had almost no legal rights. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, you're going to get the inheritance. You're going to get it. You're going to get a reward from Jesus Christ. And he wants this to dominate their minds. Not only is they promised something good, but they're promised an inheritance. And that's something that you give to a child. That's something that you give to your heir, the inheritance. So I want you to think about how glorious of, uh, of, of a promise that this is, that this landing on him. He's remind, even in the way that he's saying that, he's reminding them, yes, you are a slave in this world, but don't forget that you are a son or a daughter of God and you have an inheritance coming to you. Christ is going to give you an inheritance. This will surely happen. So he's kicking their gaze to eternity. And this is not the only thing he reminds them of in eternity. Verse 25, he leans in and he he comforts them. Part of his comfort is you are going to receive a a reward that far outweighs all the suffering that you're going through. You're going to receive the inheritance from Jesus Christ. And then the other side of that is he leans in and he's telling slaves, you need to know this. The wrongdoer is going to receive a payment for what he has done. And you see this in verse 25. He comforts these slaves with a reminder that the masters who treat them cruelly and unjustly, they will be paid back in eternity for the wrongs that they have done. This will not be left in an unjust state. Jesus is going to right every wrong, every single one of them. And so it it might be hellacious suffering in this world, but they're going to receive a payment for what they've done and their cruel treatment of the image bearers of God. He tells us that there's going to be no partiality on that day. And in an earthly sense, we know this, okay? that those who are powerful, those who have powerful positions in society, they have all kinds of preferential treatment and partiality. And certainly in this master-slave relationship, it was one-sided to the core. One-sided to the core. But, but he's telling, he's leaning in and he's telling, but there's coming a day where all that's going to be turned upside down. And that master is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. And, and there's not going to be any partiality in that day. No favoritism in that day. None. None. No respecter of persons in that day. They will be punished for the wrong that they have done. Paul then turns the corner and he addresses Christian slaves, the slave owners, Christian slave owners in verse chapter four, verse one. And he basically tells them two things. And the first is this. Remember, Jesus rules you. Slave owners, 
You have a master in heaven. He's reminding them that there's a higher authority than the authority that they possess in the life of their slave. He's reminding them about the lordship of Christ. That Jesus owns you. He rules you. That's the vertical truth. And then on the basis of that, he bends that vertical out horizontal. And he says, on the basis of you knowing that Jesus is over you, owns you, and rules you, you bend that out horizontal and you treat your slaves with justice and fairness. That's what he commanded them. Now I want you to think about that. That's the kind of stuff. Treat your slaves with justice and fairness. That's the kind of stuff that the Bible injects into this relationship that eventually leads to the demise of the whole system. You think about that. If that were to actually play out and you were to be in a legal relationship with another human being that the state and the government considered they are your property, but God says you treat them with justice and fairness. That automatically means that the law of God has just forbidden you to treat a human being like a piece of disposable property. This is how God's law upended the system. It transformed the way that the slaves and the masters were to relate to one another. There was a standard of righteousness applied to that relationship that led to its ultimate demise. The Bible did that. He's injecting that into this system. So he's addressing the masters. He's addressing their authority over their slaves. And this is another example. We've seen this in, in uh, husbands and wives, children and parents. And then, and then now we have this carefully guarded warning about authority gone wrong. That the tendency with the authority is to abuse it. Okay? And we see in all of these, all of these examples that you receive authority to serve someone else. To serve someone else. One of the best pictures of this in Scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3. Listen closely. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So this is an example of biblical authority. Biblical authority is a blessing to those who are under it. And a distortion of biblical authority is to be a tyrant over those who are under your authority. It's a blessing when one rules justly, ruling in the fear of God. It's a blessing to those who are under that authority. It's given to serve others. Now... That's the context. That's what the Apostle Paul is commanding of these slaves and of these masters that have converted to Christ. And here's our question. The hardest part of this text. Okay, That was then and this is now. That was then and this is now. And the question of the hour is what in the world does that have to do with me? Okay, Here's what we know for sure. Okay, We have diversity at Grace Community Church. There's a diversity of age. There's a diversity of the kinds of work that we do. There's a diversity of personality. There's a diversity of socioeconomic status. There's a diversity of ethnicity at Grace Community Church. But let me tell you something we don't have. Okay, We don't have Christian slaves at Grace Community Church. And we don't have Christian slave masters 
at Grace Community Church. And so there's no direct line parallel to us applying these commandments. There's no direct line. Okay. But before you close your Bible this morning, we got to learn how to deal with passages. How do we bring that stuff from there to here without distorting the meaning and the intention of those passages? And the way that we do that with passages like this is we look for principles in this passage that jump the culture gap, that jump the time gap. And there are some here. There are principles in this passage that hit us this morning. Not just as good advice, but there are principles in this passage that hit us this morning with the authority of Christ. With the authority of Jesus Christ. So I want us to finish up with this passage of being confronted by these commandments. What do these commandments have to do with me? And they mainly apply to us today in our context in the area of our vocation. And also in the area of our pursuit of Jesus Christ. So I'll give you three of these. And the first is this. This text calls us to evaluate our lives for any, to discern any and all manifestations of eye service. Of eye service. Now, when you make this a broader principle that you apply to your entire life. This idea of serving when someone's looking, okay? I just want to tell you, this is an extremely heavy and convicting principle to lay over your entire life and to bow the knee and ask God the Holy Spirit to search you in this area. Of Lord Jesus, what do I do? What are all the things that I'm doing in my life that I'm doing to be seen by somebody else? Or, or ask that a different way. Lord Jesus, if, if nobody knew ever, if nobody ever laid eyes on this area of my life, would I still serve you as diligently in that area if the eyes of man never saw it? This principle of eye-pleasing, eye-service is convicting, convicting. So I want you to ask yourself this. How much of your diligence in the workplace is motivated by other people seeing what you do? And the moment that somebody else walks out of that room and doesn't see what you do, does the quality of your work change? And the Bible has a name for that. It's called eye service. It's called eye service. Or take this in your spiritual life. Okay, The things you do for Jesus, your zeal for Christ and your pursuit of Christ... How much of that is motivated by other people knowing what you're doing with the spiritual disciplines or with good works? It's extremely convicting. Christ demands, this is the principle, Christ demands that we serve him when no one else is looking. When no one else is looking. I want, to, I want us to just be aware of this. Uh, and some of us may be more guilty of this than we're aware of now. But we definitely know that this that this happens repetitively in our culture in the workplace. Okay, it seems like the goal of some people that some people's life goal. Okay, is my life goal is to live as long as possible and do as little work as I possibly can do, and that's my goal in life. 
Anything hard, I run from it. Anything sweat, I avoid it like cancer and like the plague. Okay? And we have to be careful as followers of Jesus Christ of that mindset landing on us that we have some zeal in the workplace only if somebody's looking. But when nobody's looking anymore, we're daydreaming for 5 o'clock and we're living for the weekend. Just trying to get it over with as fast as possible, doing as little work as possible. Christ commands every follower of Christ to work hard, to be diligent in what you do. And this applies, this applies all across the room. It applies to students. It applies to stay-at-home moms. It applies to doctors. It applies to pastors. It applies to construction workers. It applies to no matter the type of work that you do. Jesus actually demands that you work hard, that you have some diligence in what you do. And listen, here's the kicker. When nobody else is looking, when nobody else is looking, this is the warning about eye service. And if we ignore this, if we ignore this, I'll read you a verse of scripture of what our employers feel like when we ignore this. And really what the Lord Jesus has a measure of. When we ignore this Proverbs chapter 10 verse 26 says this like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. So is the sluggard to those who send him. So is the sluggard to those who send him. When we're guilty of this, those who employ us, those who are over us in an earthly sense, we make them feel like they take a big swig of vinegar and swish it around in their mouth like mouthwash. Okay. It, you just get a picture of that. I've never done it. Doesn't sound enjoyable to me. Okay, and the point of that is it's an irritant. This is this is a way that you actually undermine the gospel in your life. That you can be sound in orthodoxy. That you can preach the gospel in every corner of your life. But the way that you live can undercut it. It can undercut it. You blaspheme the gospel and how you carry yourself at work. You can be vinegar to the teeth of those who oversee you if you're given to eye service. Tremendously convicting principle. What do you do when no one's looking? Number two. The text calls us to throw ourselves into our work. And it forbids us from going after the task that the Lord Jesus has given us in a half-hearted way. Cause us, we're, we're to have sincerity of heart, fearing and serving the Lord. Fearing and serving the Lord. Now, many Christians and many of you in this room, you have a lot of struggle seeing your job as pointless and boring. And I understand it. That's a common struggle when we're in the battle to see what's the good in this? What, what, what am I actually adding to benefit human society and the type of work that I do? Some of you have jobs like that. You just can't, you, you struggle to find the good in it. Some of you have jobs that are really, really, really boring. Really boring. But guess what? They don't compare at all to a Roman slave. Not even at all. The worst job that you can imagine. The most boring job that you can imagine doesn't even compare to slave work. But what the passage tells us is that even slave work can be done wholeheartedly in the fear of Christ. And that should encourage us. That should encourage us. The, the, one, of, the one of us with the most boring job in this room, you can do it wholeheartedly for Christ. Wholeheartedly 
for Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. All your might. Work at it with all your might. With everything that you have. This is Christ's command to us. This is Christ's command to us. And what this tells us, we don't, have, we don't believe the prosperity gospel. Okay? That we, that we trust Christ, that we repent of our sins, that we believe the gospel, and everything goes well with us. We have lots of money. We have perfect health. We have great everything. And we have the most awesome job. Okay? We don't believe that. Just because you come to Jesus Christ, okay, there's no guarantee that you get the quote-unquote, you get the awesome job. Okay? Followers of Christ in every generation have found themselves serving God in obscurity and very, very difficult tasks, very difficult types of work. And this is encouragement to us because even if we're one of those, the passage tells us is, is that we can serve Christ in these areas, serve Christ in these jobs. And really, it kind of it kind of flips upside down to how we think about it. We're, we're so given to the type of work that we do determines how honorable the work is. In other words, you know, the medical industry. Oh, man, that's that's a the high gain job. Easy, easy line to see how you're adding gain to, to humanity. That's an honorable profession. Data collection or cu- customer service. Uh, a job for a, for a telecommunications company, not so much, not so straight of a line. And so we're given towards the way that we think about it is broken. The honor is not in the type of work that you do. The honor comes in the way that you do your work, that you're discharging your duties in the fear of Christ wholeheartedly. That puts the focus off, not I need this kind of job or I need this kind of job, but it's I need this kind of attitude. I need this kind of heart for the Lord Jesus. To serve Him with sincerity of heart, fearing Him. And again, I'll say this, Christ cares about how you work. He really cares about how you do the things that He has called you to do. We'll close with this. Finally, final, final application for us this morning is that the text command, commands us to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord. And literally, when he says that in the passage, it's be a slave of Christ. We are commanded in the word of God to be slaves of Jesus Christ, slaves of Christ. This is our identity. This is our identity. Okay. So there is a way to view your conversion to Jesus Christ as being set free. Okay? And that is true. That everyone who has bowed the knee to Christ and believed in the gospel, you have been set free from sin. You were once a slave of sin, but you have been delivered from that slavery. You've been set free. But you spin that diamond of conversion just a little bit. And there's another sense that you walk out of slavery into another form of slavery. You walk out of slavery into sin and you happily bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the master of all and the Lord of all. We are slaves of Jesus and our whole life exists to serve him. We exist to serve him. 
His pleasure and His glory. Servants of Jesus Christ. I'll just kind of take us to eternity for just a minute. And I'll remind every one of us that your service to Jesus is either going to be genuine or it's going to be counterfeit. That's the only two options. And the thing that's going to determine that is whether you are a man pleaser or a God fearer. And so that's where I want us to pause and end on today. Your service to Jesus will be judged to be authentic or counterfeit. And the thing that's going to determine that is if you're a man pleaser or a God fearer. And so I want us all to be freshly reminded today about the hypocrisy in religion, about the danger of hypocrisy in our relationship with Jesus Christ. This is somebody who goes along with the flow with other Christians. Your friends are Christians. They talk like Christians. You jump into the crowd. You talk like them. You do the things that they do. But you're, you're, like, you're, you're, you're doing the Christian life like an actor on a stage. This is hypocrisy. Man pleasing. And you need to be very careful that you are not serving Jesus Christ to earn a godly reputation before men. That is way more prevalent and way more dangerous than we talk about. That I do Christian things so other people think I'm a godly man. Listen to this reminder in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And so in a real sense, you get to pick. You get to pick. You get to praise the men or you get to fear Jesus Christ. But we cannot have both. Can't, can't have both. We can't be sincere followers of Jesus and playing like actors on a stage in our pursuit of Christ. And the sharpest way that I want you to feel that as a local church is beware of practicing your righteousness before others. To be seen by others. And so, let's sum up the passage like this. We are to serve Jesus. We are to serve Christ as His slaves for His sake. Not for our own sake. And you can say it like this. When the eyes of Christ are enough for you, you don't need to perform before other people. So He's encouraging these slaves. Jesus is there. Jesus sees what you're doing. You're always serving right before His face, right before His eyes. And if we lay a hold of that truth, that all of our life is lived before the face of Christ, we don't need, we don't need what other people can give us. And when our mind is consumed about that reward that I'm going to get from the, from the Lord Jesus, that I'm going to get that inheritance, then my mind is not consumed with pleasing men and, and, and the accolades that other men would give me. And so the remedy for all this is to drive the mind to Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be set free from man-pleasing, eye service. And so what we see in Colossians, and this seems kind of like a, a repeat over and over again, is Paul over and over again, he takes the supremacy of Jesus Christ and he lays it down and he applies it to every single corner of our life that Jesus must reign in every corner, in every nook, in every cranny. And the way that we want to walk out and respond today is in our workplace. In the things that we do for Christ when we scatter from here. He must reign 
in that place. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to use your word today. God, we ask you to bear bear witness to your word that all scripture is profitable. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do what we have already requested of you, God, that you would instruct minds today, that you would instruct our mind, that you would teach us how to think, Lord. And God, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to fill these commands and these principles, to fill the authority of them. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply these commands and these principles all over this room. Personally address us, God, as we meditate on what you have called us to do in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.